Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Ever since 2015, today, June 13th, has been Albinism Awareness Day. People affected by the genetic condition all around the world, but Africans inherit it more than others. There are deadly superstitions about albinism in East Africa. In 2015, the government of Malawi ordered protections for people with albinism, but violence there has taken off. Fifteen people with albinism have been killed recently by what the government of Malawi calls a sophisticated syndicate of organized crime. Last year, I spoke with Peter Ash, founder of Under the Same Sun, the NGO that lobbied for International Albinism Awareness Day. He explains why people with albinism are marginalized in East Africa. Well, this really stems from two things, uh, a long-standing traditional cultural belief that persons with albinism, or as our listeners may know, albinos, uh, we use the term persons with albinism to humanize the genetic condition, but there's been a belief in most of sub-Saharan Africa for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that if a child is born with this condition, he is somehow subhuman. He's not equal to others. Remember, mom and dad are very dark-skinned, often living in very remote areas with limited access to medical clinics or medical or genetic information. And so in the absence of any true data on the child being so white, looking Caucasian, or even fairer than most Caucasians with white hair and, you know, sort of lighter colored eyes and light skin, they're grasping for an explanation. And a deep-seated belief in uh, witchcraft exists in a large number of these countries. And witch doctors have a great deal of influence uh, in the rural communities and in many tribes in uh, eastern, western, southern Africa. And so this belief has existed for a long time that this being must be someone that doesn't belong in our tribe. They must be a European ghost. They must be subhuman. They must be uh, somehow magical. And so the, the stigma and the discrimination and the isolation that uh, people like myself have experienced in those countries has been around for a long time. And can you give us a, an example of, of what happens in, in one of these attacks? Because there are people whose limbs are cut off and, um, and there's a trade in, in body parts that's going on. Yeah, I can tell you a story. In 2008, I went to Tanzania for the first time. And what's going on in Malawi is simply an extension and a replication of what began in 2008 and, and even before that in Tanzania. Now it's moved on to Malawi and Mozambique. And indeed, in 28 African countries, we have data of such attacks and killings. But I'll illustrate the answer to your question. In 2008, my first trip to East Africa and Tanzania, where our offices are, I remember traveling to the northwest part of the country near Mwanza. And I went to a home about an hour out of the city in a rural area. And talked to a mother uh, who told me the story of how her little girl, who was at the time probably two or three years old, Mary Amma was her name, a uh, man had broken into their home in the darkness of the night, prepared with machetes, with uh, cooking utensils, with bags. It was pitch black. Um, two of the uh, siblings were sleeping in the same home. The uh, parents were sleeping in an adjacent building. And they came in and they chopped off Mariam's, uh, Mary Amma's arms and her legs and slit her throat. And uh, the reason they do this is they take the, the limbs and the blood, the hair, other bodily organs, they collect them in a bag, and they take them away and they sell them. Uh, these are henchmen or killers hired uh, by people practicing witchcraft who meet with consumers, wealthy individuals, politicians, business people who want to become wealthy and successful. And the witch doctor says to do that, you have to bring me the body part of a person with albinism, which they wouldn't dignify by calling them that. They would consider them a ghost. And I would use this in a potion or a talisman uh, through some combination of other ingredients to give you success. I guess you could use the analogy of a rabbit's foot if you wanted to. How do you go into a situation like this and 
change it? Well, I'm in Africa uh, three, three times a year on average working on the ground with our staff in Tanzania. We have 20 employees in our office there, and they uh, several months ago traveled to Malawi to provide training to the albinism group there. Our two chief goals are albinism uh, related in terms of advocacy and public awareness. That's number one. So getting on the ground, doing what we call understanding albinism seminars. So we go into the villages where the killings and attacks are happening. We get community leaders, religious leaders, school teachers, doctors, uh, police together, and we conduct a large-scale public seminar. And we say, these people are not ghosts. They're human beings. We bring staff members that have albinism that are highly educated with university degrees and say, look, they are your fellow human beings or your fellow neighbors. And we demonstrate the humanity. We explain the medical realities that the only genetic differences we have is that our skin has less pigment and we have low vision. We have visual impairment. There's nothing magical about us. There's nothing supernatural about us. And we just teach the truth about albinism. And it's amazing how in that process, a lot of the ignorance quite rapidly falls away. The second thing we do beyond the advocacy piece is we do uh, a, an educational program where we have in the country of Tanzania 250 students with albinism that we put into private English medium schools that are of high academic quality to show society several of our graduates, 50 of our graduates already are gainfully employed in very significant careers. And so when you go into the bank and your banker has albinism or you go into the school and your school teacher has albinism, it will become increasingly difficult to believe that they are cursed ghosts. So it's a long-term multi-generational process of ending stigma and discrimination. Um, that sounds like some terrific on-the-ground work you're doing. Um, you're also working with the United Nations. You're also working from the top down and have been trying to raise awareness about albinism and abuses of people with albinism there. Yeah, we have. In fact, uh, several years ago, I went to the United Nations for the first time in New York City. And at that time, nobody at the UN knew anything about albinism. They might have known the word albino to mean someone with white hair. But they had no idea that people with albinism uh, in several countries were facing this kind of stigma and attack and, in fact, killings. And they were completely unaware of this. And so I began to gradually get their attention. It took a couple of years to create International Albinism Awareness Day. And, and if you want to find out more about it, you can go to our website, underthesamesun.com, underthesamesun.com, or our Facebook page. And this is a day where across the world, albinism groups – uh, recognize this issue and raise awareness because albinism happens in every culture, every ethnicity. It is no respecter of ethnicity. It's just that the effects of having it are more deadly in sub-Saharan Africa in many cases. I'm talking with Peter Ash, founder and CEO of Under the Same Sun, an organization that lobbies for protection of people with albinism in East Africa. Today is International Albinism Awareness Day. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we'll hear music from the Tanzanian Albinism Collective. What are some of the uh, aspects of having it in this country and in uh, developed countries? How do people fare? Well, I'll tell you, I'm born and raised in Canada. So when I was a child, it was very difficult in school because they didn't have the kind of integration programs that exist today for students with disabilities. And because I have a visual impairment, I couldn't see the blackboard growing up. And because albinism in North America is so rare, about 1 in 20,000 people in the U.S. and Canada will have albinism. So, you know, a good many people don't really know someone with albinism. They might know that they've seen someone like that with white hair. But most, for example, don't know that we have a visual impairment. And most of us are legally blind and can't drive a car. And so the big challenge many of us have had uh, in schooling is completing our schoolwork because teachers don't know how to accommodate us. Uh, we also face bullying, name-calling. Uh, growing up, you know, whitey, snowflake, snow white, I was beat up. Think of all the Hollywood films uh, that you've seen. Uh, the Matrix Reloaded, uh, Da Vinci Code, Powder, The Heat. I could name about 30 or 40 films that have been produced in the last 30 years 
that depict characters of albinism in pop culture in North America. And Hollywood consistently chooses to display people with albinism as evil, killers, villains, mentally deranged. We're seldom portrayed as the heroes or simply as sort of normal parts of a regular film. And so there is this, even here, this mystification of albinism. Are there places you would identify as doing a good job with people with albinism that, that, that they, they've really broken down barriers and done a good job of education? Um, some are better than others. I've certainly seen some pretty good progress in South Africa. One of the strongest albinism support groups uh, that we know of is there. Um, we see some really strong examples in Kenya. They've had a judge in Kenya with albinism who's been very successful, a member of parliament. Uh, we've seen some success in Nigeria, a very influential business person and leader I know with albinism. So there are isolated examples in certain countries, but even in those countries, um, while certain persons with albinism might have succeeded, those who are less educated and living in rural areas are still facing real challenges. One person has said, we are the minority of all minorities. Certainly in North America, we would be. In Tanzania, one in 1,500 people have albinism. So I think for me, actions speak louder than words. And uh, when you see a country that is starting to have an increasing number of persons with albinism taking positions of influence in a wide variety of sectors, then we become encouraged. And some of the countries I mentioned certainly have been achieving that to a greater degree. Do people with albinism ever come together to live in a community for protection or for just, you know, comfort? Sometimes they do. Um, and, uh, and I certainly understand why they do, because they can be with friends and colleagues who are similar and understand. Uh, we are strong. Our position as an organization is we don't uh, encourage that kind of behavior. Certainly socializing and having a support group of other people with albinism is productive, but sort of living in a commune environment. It reinforces the societal stigma. So, quote, unquote, let's put all the albinos behind a fence and keep them safe. That's like saying, let's take all the African-Americans and put them in one community. Let's take all the people of this ethnicity and put them over here. Because after all, they have all these problems. And so let's just confine them, right? It creates segregation. You've got an apartheid kind of system going on. We want people with albinism to be fully included. And to that end, my vision and my dream is I have a dream one day that people with albinism would take their rightful place in every level of society and that the days of discrimination would be a faint memory. And so, yes, you're right, it does happen. Our, our preference is that they go to regular schools, they have regular jobs, and they become like anybody else. Peter Ash is the founder and CEO of Under the Same Sun. It's an NGO that works to promote the rights and well-being of people living with albinism worldwide. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, the situation facing people with albinism. Thank June you. 13th on the calendar for uh, Yeah, and feel free to check us out. Underthesamesun.com. If your listeners want to get more information about the issue, about what we're doing, feel free to check us out. Thanks very much, Peter Ash. The music we're hearing is from the Tanzanian Albinism Collective. We'll find out more about them on Global Notes after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
Before the break, we were talking about the upswing in violence against people with albinism in Malawi. We're going to continue talking about albinism now on Global Notes with Tony Sarabia, where we look at international music. The Tanzanian Albinism Collective, their album is called White African Power. Tony, I was surprised to hear about this, but then I heard that it was the music producer, Ian Bremen, who was behind it. Yeah. And it all started making sense. I know. Ian Brennan, who uh, had two, part one, part two, the Zamba Prism Project, which we've talked about. Uh, Jerome, you mentioned he's a Grammy Award-winning producer, worked on the uh, Tanarawan Group's uh, album, Tassili. He's he's here with us on the line, right? Yes. Hey, Ian Brennan, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much. It's good to talk with you. Well, tell us how you got involved in this project, Ian, because it sounds like not the typical project here. You uh, met some Tanzanians. How did this go on? My wife and I, Marilena Deli, who we've been doing these projects now for about a decade, where we are very interested in trying to provide a, a platform for underrepresented and largely unheard regions of the world. But in doing that, I think it's very important that the songs must come first. So we go into these projects always with the uh, willingness to never release them. And we never know if anybody will release them. So with this project, it was very close to our hearts because of the persecution and seeing that also in Malawi and then in Tanzania. And so we went to Yukarewe Island, which is incredibly isolated. It's a four-hour ferry ride from from a relatively small area to begin with. It's beautiful, but but it's it's isolated. And we work there with 99% non-musicians. There was one guy who played guitar and sang who has a short, short track on the record, and everyone else had never played before. And it, it was just incredible, what, the progression that they made while we were there and, and the stories that they expressed. And I, I stand by the music 100%, as, as strong as I could, that the story may be great and the cause may be good, but the songs by themselves, are incredibly original and adventurous. And, and you, you teamed up with this uh, organization called the Standing Voice Community to help them write songs, Ian. They had these writing workshops. How easily did the people you were working with come to to write these stories and, and, and then to sing them? Well, you know, Standing Voices, uh, as there are many great organizations, I know you were speaking with one uh, previously in the program, um, they're, they're a wonderful group of individuals. They've done incredible work there with vision care and cancer prevention with sunscreen. And we've been able to help them get hats for people to also help with some of that prevention. And they built a little center there. It's quite beautiful, actually, uh, on Yukarewe Island. And they asked people in their community who might be interested. And so the people that committed were pretty committed. You know, it, it wasn't random. And there were 20 people that committed to this, and we went there not, not knowing what would happen, and we sent instruments ahead. What we came to discover, which we had no idea, was that when we arrived there, that many of them in their lifetime had been discouraged from singing and dancing, not only in everyday life, but even in church, that one place where historically people have been allowed to express themselves freely, and so much great music comes out of that tradition – even there, they were oftentimes not allowed to express themselves. The thing that we found out that was related to this that was very incredible was that the instruments we'd sent ahead were untouched. They'd been there for months, and they were meeting every week about this program, you know, that we were going to come and write songs and record. And 
but they were fearful of touching them. You know, they revered them, I guess, almost too much. So the first thing we did then in discovering that was literally basically broke the instruments, you know, like had every single person touch them, throw them, (laughs) you know, to to demystify them. And then we asked individuals if they would be willing to take the instruments home at night. And so each night, three or four individuals would take it home with the agreement that they would come back the next day with a song or more that they'd written on the instrument. And so that's started the process, kind of that unfreezing process. And the progression was just incredible, just incredible to see. We're talking with music producer Ian Brennan and discussing his project. It's the Tanzanian Albinism Collective, and the album is White African Power. And we haven't heard a cut yet. Let's hear the title cut from White African Power, We Live in Danger. It's Global Notes here on Worldview. I'm talking with Ian Brennan, a Grammy Award-winning producer who recorded the Tanzanian Albinism Collective. We're also here with Tony Sarabia of Morning Shift and Radio M. Today is International Albinism Awareness Day. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we'll talk a bit about the meaning of Ramadan, which comes to an end tomorrow. What are some of the people like? What do they do uh, there on the island in Tanzania? Well, there's a range. I mean, Standing Voice, part of what they've done is to, to assist individuals in, in, in tra- trying to you know, have a, a livelihood and, and to be included in the community. And so there's a couple that both have albinism that are both tailors. Uh, Riziki, who we just heard his song, Never Forget the Killings, uh, he is runs kind of an electronic store and and so he took to the keyboard he was quite keen on it because he's uh you know fixes cell phones and and that sort of thing uh there's a woman nima who who makes pots that are sun baked and and are amazing uh we have two of them in our home here and uh so there's a wide range and unfortunately and again not to emphasize the negative but unfortunately there are there are still some of them that that are extremely ostracized and, and the stories are just just crushing you know uh to hear about the denial of 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 well water in villages by some of them for fear of contamination and to hear how many of them how consistently were abandoned by their fathers when they were born so the mothers were left to raise them and two of the women uh, that are on the record don't have albinism they have children with albinism but they're part of the community and 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 their experiences in some cases are probably just as trying. I mean, they go through horrible, horrible things as a result of people's ignorance and people's prejudice. I mean, what what do they hope comes out of this project? Uh, some changed minds on the government level? What what Do they have any sort of hopes or, I don't know, wishes that, hey, I hope this does some good for us? 
there's the pleasure of making music, which I think is the most important thing. And a, a very consistent feedback was an increase in confidence as a result of that. And, and certainly we could see that embodied. I, I hope it's sustainable, but we could see that embodied just through the physical movement. Hopefully a recording like this is humanizing. And that's that's what many of them express, that they, they really wanted people to understand them as individuals, you know, to, to understand their stories and, and, and to hear them. And if you listen to the record, you're hearing diverse voices yeah. and and I would argue incredibly unique voices, you know, and that's what's so beautiful about the record to me is that most of these voices, you can't listen to that and go, oh, that sounds like blank. You know, you can't say that sounds like Beyonce. I mean, yeah. it just doesn't sound like <laughs> they're very, you know, fingerprint uh vocals as opposed to, uh, you know, cookie cutter. Well, congratulations on the project. Uh, music producer Ian Brennan and the project is the Tanzanian Albinism Collective. Their album is White African Power, and there's a short film about it yeah. um, that's very good. And uh, I hope people check out the album. And Tony Sarabia, thanks for another fine Global Notes. We'll go out on another tune. Coming up after the break, we'll talk a bit about Ramadan. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Ramadan ends at tomorrow night at sundown. We're going to talk about some of the ways area Muslims combine Ramadan actions with actions for social justice. And we're going to talk specifically about the fasting 5Ks that took place earlier this month. With me is Dr. Aisha El-Amin. She's Associate Provost and Chief of Staff at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's also a member of the Inner City Muslim Action Network, known by its acronym IMAM, and an avid runner. Nice to see you. Nice to talk with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I think for non-Muslims, Ram- Ramadan always seems like a big ask. It's it's fasting all day long, and uh, and for a month. Uh, yes. <laughs> what are the benefits? What are, what's the good end of this? No, and I I, uh, I often get that like, oh my gosh, a month with no food or water um, from sun up to sundown. So there's many benefits, and and of course there's some challenges, uh, but that's how you grow. Uh, for for me, the benefits um, are enormous, and I've been doing it since I was 12 years old, but. Uh, practicing self-restraint, especially in the context of today where uh, everything is now. I want it now and I want it fast. Uh, but but self-restraint and also understanding that there um, and connecting that there are people who are without um, and knowing that although we get to break the fast and eat, there's some people who don't have the opportunity to eat. Um, and so it connects us to, to that as well. What's What's the biggest challenge? Ooh, the biggest challenge, um, figuring out what to eat at the end, though. Um, <laughs> I would say the biggest challenge, uh, it changes as you grow. Um, uh, when I was 12 and I first started, the biggest challenge was just not eating um, and focusing on not eating. I think the biggest challenge for me um, now is really um, being mindful of my thoughts um, because um, we know that thoughts lead to words and words lead to actions. And I want those thoughts to be as pure as possible. So the actions um, that, that I, you know, that, that come after them are pure and meaningful. It almost seems to have a meditative quality to it that, uh, 
that is manifest in the fasting. You, 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 you think. It makes you think and redirect your thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, and I oftentimes say, you know, get with me in Ramadan and I'll give you clear and focused answers. Um, it does. There is a, a meditative state uh, that comes about. And, and we, we see this when we pray um, uh, all throughout the year. And fasting is not just relegated to the month of Ramadan for us, right? We have fasting throughout the, the, the year at different, um, different points, uh, Shawal and the fasting of the Prophet which was Monday and, and, um, and Thursday. Uh, so this, it reminds us and it brings us back to the remembrance of our creator and the remembrance of people that, you know, are without. So there is a, a meditation and peace with that. How do you reflect on Ramadan in this particular time? We are living in strange times. There are a lot of issues out there that affect Muslims and uh, on, on a daily basis that are that are negative. Absolutely. Um, so one of the great things about the month of Ramadan is that we we get together as a community more than we do any other time of the year. And so um, when you are under attack, um, it is oftentimes beautiful to be, to have the solidarity and, and, and the peace and love of your community. And so um, that's one of the benefits uh, in this particular time that we, we have a space that we get together um, uh, during the month of Ramadan. One of the cool things that uh, you and your friends here have participated in is the Fasting 5K that took place earlier this month. There were two of them. And I want to introduce your, your friends here. Dr. Aisha Sadiki is a pediatric anesthesiologist at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital. She's co-founder of the Ramadan Fasting 5K Runs in Chicago. And she's here with her children, Nuseba Quadri um, and Ryan Quadri. And they're both uh, co-founders of the Ramadan Fasting 5K uh, Run in Chicago. Thanks a lot for joining us. Nice to meet you. Thank you for Thank having you. us. It's Thank a pleasure. You. Thank you for the T-shirt. I've got, I've got a, a <laughs> The Fasting 5K t-shirt on, just like they do right now. Yeah, they're That's great. Yep. Uh, so tell me about the Fasting 5K. Yeah, this seems like um, right, kind of antithetical to the idea uh, or, uh, you know, what people would think would happen with Ramadan. You would not want to run out and do a 5K. But this has become a thing. It's, it's a thing um, in different places. Uh, Aisha? Absolutely. So the Fasting 5K started um, in Boston. There were a group of individuals that we're trying to get a education organization that was trying eventually going to go belly up, and they wanted to help raise some funds. Um, and one of the pillars of Islam is zakah, which is um, raising money and giving money to the needy. And so they did a little bike run. They raised some money, and they thought, you know what, let's try to do this every year and make it an event. And so they started it. And every year, the proceeds go to some sort of youth organization. Every year, it's focused around the youth. And they pick a mission statement every year. First year that we did it was on mental illness um, and how it affects children. And um, the following year, it was um, political activation, act, political activeness for children. And then this final year was um, safety against youth violence. Well, that's terrific. Now, uh, Rayan and Nuseba, what, what's the funnest thing about this? What did, what did you What did you enjoy about this um, process? Everybody coming together and running and knowing it's for a good cause. It's really like motivating, especially running. It's like really fun. Especially. Yeah, running with like friends and family, and while you're running, knowing that's going to a good cause, and helping organizations um, that are helping the youth, like people like us, but that are like going through different tough times. 
Rayon, you ran the whole time? You ran the whole yeah. 5K? It's, it's yeah. over three miles. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You say, but you walked a little. <laughs> I walked and then sprinted. I'm like, I have to get farther. Come on. I don't want to be the last person. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just like walk sprints with my friends. Did it seem easier for uh, you than, than it did for uh, the moms and dads out there? I mean, everyone gets tired and thirsty in Ramadan, and you're supposed to walk and take it easy because God doesn't want us to get hurt to hurt ourselves by fasting. So we encourage everyone to walk the actual event, but us kids love to run. <laughs> yep, so there is this, you know, you want to do your best, and, and yeah. it is a race. Yep. Uh, now, some of the benefit went to the Inner City Muslim Action Network. That's one of the organizations that benefited this year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what uh, what kind of things are they going to do with for the youth? So the program that we were focusing on was the Green Reentry Program, which helps um, previously incarcerated individuals try to get back on the straight path. Um, you know, people that become incarcerated come from families and homes where if they go back to it, it's hard to stay away from the tough life. And so what the Green Reentry Program does, it helps them find homes, it helps them find work, and find an avenue that prevents them from getting back to where they were before. And it's it's helped, you know, over 30, 40 people so far. Um, we've met a couple of the individuals at the Fasting 5K event, and it was truly humbling and truly inspiring for um, us to meet them. And they're um, goal now is to help a lot of the teenagers that have been recently incarcerated try to stay away and try to find a good future life for themselves. When one event is over, you immediately start planning for the next one, I imagine. Uh, are there, do you guys have some thoughts about what's next and what, what, the, what, the, what group is going to benefit next? Um, well, so the Fasting 5K organization has to find, figure out what their mission statement is going to be. Once they decide on the mission statement, um, we will search local organizations that can help benefit um, from the funds that are raised. Um, Nuseba, Rayon, you guys had a, your own GoFundMe page. You, how did you do? Did, uh, yeah, we, yeah, we raised um, some money. Like we raised, we tried to raise like as much money as we can. Um, we were able to yeah. raise, thankfully, with their commercial, um, yeah. $12,000. Commercial? What yeah, not 12000 sorry. Um, <laughs> for the northern suburban area, we were able to raise 12000 But for our, um, our GoFundMe or CrowdRise page, I think we ended up with $7,000. Well, that's terrific. And I, I bet you'll want to do it again next year. And a yeah. lot of people, yeah. did, did your friends, did you, can you get some friends to do it? Do you get friends to run yeah, with you? Yeah, at school, we were always like, oh, yes, guys, sign up for the Fasting 5K. It's going to be a lot of fun. And we made, like, these, like, we had, like, a pretend news report, and, like, we just had, like, reminders that we just, just to remind people to sign up and just to participate. Yeah, and it's going to, like, a good cause. Um, yeah. Nuseba Quadri and Rayan Quadri were co-founders of the Ramadan Fasting 5K, along with Dr. Aisha Siddiqui, pediatric anesthesiologist and uh, at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital. Thanks also to Dr. Aisha El-Amin, and uh, she's a member of the Inner City Muslim Action Network. And thanks a lot for joining us and talking about social action and Ramadan. Ramadan Mubarak, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up uh, tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to be talking about the World Cup. We'll have a call in. It'll be a lot of fun. And we'll chat about the beginning of the World Cup competition. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.